This week, we are looking at God miraculously opening the womb of an elderly woman named Elizabeth. Next week, we are looking at God miraculously opening the womb of a virgin teenager named Mary. This is how Luke begins his gospel. It's quite unique. It begins with um, pre-born babies and unlikely women. And one of the things, I don't know if you caught it when we, uh, when we listened to the reading just a few minutes ago, there was quite a juxtaposition in the reading. So I want to I begin uh, my, my message this morning by talking about serving God with a broken heart. See, where Luke picks up their story, we see Elizabeth and Zechariah handling lifelong disappointment and social shame with righteousness and blamelessness before God. Doesn't mean they were perfect, but it means they were faithful. And so we see in verse 6 that it says, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. There's the juxtaposition, righteous and childless. I want you to try and imagine, and for some of you it will be easy. I want you to imagine the heartache and lifelong suffering of Elizabeth and Zechariah who lived in a society that judges you as super sinners if you don't have kids. That was the societal norm. If you don't have kids, what did you do? So that's why Elizabeth, at the end of our text, verse 25, that's why she says, the Lord has taken away my reproach among people. This is what her pregnancy meant for her. My reproach among the people, the way they see me, the way they judge me, they view me this way. But now that God is giving me a child, he has taken away my reproach among the people. I mean, think about the tension they must have lived in all those decades. They they probably wonder why they're childless if they're righteous or wondered if they truly were righteous since they were childless, but beautifully, they served God even though they didn't have what they wanted. That just might be one of the most beautiful testimonies that exists. Would you agree? They worshiped God even though they didn't have what they wanted. Like, I've been a pastor long enough. I know I look like I'm 17, but I've been a pastor long enough now to have seen many people walk away from church, but many people walk away from faith because God didn't come through for them in the way they expected or the way that they hoped. And and I don't say that tritely. I do not say that lightly. I'm talking about heartbreaking experiences, but have led people to the place where they say, I can't trust a God like that. So even though I'm stepping on sensitive ground, we just have to do some Christianity 101 here. This is just the bare bones basics of what we really mean about following Jesus, what it really entails. And I have to tell you this, being a Christian doesn't mean a challenge-free life. And I know kind of cognitively a lot of us are like, yeah, 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 I, yeah, I know. 
But then when hardship comes or that thing we long for never transpires, kind of functionally we go, I don't know about all this. But being a Christian doesn't mean exemption from the heartaches. And being a Christian doesn't mean every desire granted. Listen, if you serve God for what you can get, then you're actually serving yourself. And I wonder in our day, in our moment, in the church, in the West, if many of us are truly, actually serving ourselves. Why? Because we do all this expecting God's going to do some stuff for us. He's going to come through for us and deliver the things that we actually want or we think we're owed because we're righteous. We're trying to live well. We're trying to live well. But can I be honest with you? If you serve God for what you can get, you're actually serving yourself. And it's not the biblical gospel that you adhere to. It's actually something called the prosperity gospel. Now, if you were to look at a, you may maybe come across this prosperity preachers on the TV or YouTube clips of prosperity preachers and you look at them and they seem so overtly over the top. You're like, how can anybody actually be falling for this? Because somebody's saying, if you have illness right now, just give to the ministry, give to our ministry and God will heal you. Or if you are in financial crisis, gather as much money as you can and give it now and God will bountifully bless you with more, right? And people fall for it. But, but the reality of the, the prosperity gospel at large is actually that it's subtle. We could gather all the prosperity preachers of the world in the room and say the gospel, right? The atonement, that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins, that he rose victorious over the grave, and that we have life eternal in him. And every one of them would say, uh-huh, yeah. But it's the subtlety of what's said next and what's said in addition. Sometimes this is called Jesus plus. Now, in, in the true gospel, it's Jesus. You get Jesus, and Jesus does this for you as a free gift of grace. But in the prosperity gospel, it's Jesus plus. Jesus died so that you could be victorious. Jesus died so you could live a, a life of, of, of great, right, success and that you can knock down any obstacle that comes your way. This idea that Jesus gives me salvation, but he's also going to give me a carefree life. He's going to give me health. He's going to give me wealth. And he's going to give me ease. Now, again, many of us would reject that and say, no, no, that's not the gospel. But functionally, when we don't get wealth and health and ease, we go, God, aren't you supposed to deliver a bit more? I'm one of your children. Jesus, I believe the gospel here. I thought you were supposed to come through in some really basic, helpful ways. But the prosperity gospel and this idea that it's Jesus plus has this really crippling effect as well. Because when people go through hardship and believe God gave it to them because they don't have enough faith. Do you see how cruel that is? Because anytime it's Jesus plus these things, like Jesus plus if you give, Jesus plus if you're really faithful, then he'll bless you abundantly. And when we say bless you abundantly, we mean wealth, health, and ease. And so when you don't have those things, you go, God, what am I doing wrong? And it's all about you, and you are in chaos, not in peace. 
I must not be believing right because my life isn't going right. How crushing is that? It has nothing to do with the biblical gospel. Um, if you follow kind of uh, the early church history, like the really early church, like all of the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, the apostles of Jesus, like they were martyred. They were brutally killed. All of them, except for one, John, the beloved disciple. They tried to boil him at one point. They tried to kill him and it was unsuccessful. And then they banished him to a prison island. So it's like, you know, that was the one alternative. The rest died brutal deaths. And we think, man, those are the close disciples of Jesus. Why do we expect wealth, health, and ease when we accept Jesus? Like Jesus died on a cross and he's the one we look to. Why do we think it's going to go pleasant? I came across this the other day. Three things Jesus never said. You will be healthy. You will be wealthy. You will be successful. And it was followed up with three things Jesus said. You will be hated. You will have trouble. And you will suffer. Oh, disciples of Jesus, you know what you got in for, right? Can we just kind of gather the church together afresh this first Advent Sunday and just remind ourselves what we actually got ourselves into? But here's the thing. The joy of the gospel is that it's a free gift of grace from God that we do not have to earn. We don't have to work to achieve it because Jesus has already done the work to achieve it for us. And that grace, the knowledge that Jesus is that good and the gift is that secure is what sustains us through the trials that we go through. See, Christians aren't free from suffering because they serve Jesus. We serve Jesus because Jesus himself is our treasure and our hope. And even if we suffer, it's still worth it. See, the powerful testimony we read about in these opening verses is that Zechariah and Elizabeth had heartache and they served God and remained faithful to God through the pain. And to that, I just want to say, amen. There is no more wonderful testimony than that. Second thing we can draw out of this wonderful text is that God answers our prayers in his time and his way. Zechariah was a priest. Now, the way that the priestly system worked, you can, you can read about it in 1 Chronicles 24 when David is, King David is dividing up the, the, the kind of the priestly order. There are 24 divisions. He's in the division of Abijah. And so what would happen is each division of the priest would serve two one-week blocks of time at the temple over the course of a year. But then all, in addition, all of the priests would come together and serve during the major festivals. Tons of priests. And so the fact that Zechariah is chosen to be the one priest to go in and burn incense in the temple was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And so we pick it up in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And rightly so, fear fell upon him. <laughs> 
if you read about angelic appearances in, in the Bible, a uh, couple things happen routinely. One thing that often would happen is people would mistake this angelic, shining, kind of glorious creature for God himself and think that the messenger was God. So there would be confusion about that. But the other typical thing was that they just fell on their face in fear. They were terrified, freaking out, right? That, that was really common. Sometimes they'd even think they died. So they're dead or they think that it's, it's God, which would strike fear, or they're just fearful, okay? That's how it works. So if anybody wants to tell you about some sort of angel story of theirs and they're like, it was the most beautiful thing. I just felt so warm. It didn't happen, okay? <laughs> In the Bible, I, if, if they're like, I felt on my face and I was freaking out, then it's like, okay, okay, maybe, yeah. Because that's the way it happened over and over again. So Gabriel, he actually shows up in the book of Daniel. Gabriel is a messenger of God, uh, an angelic being. He shows up and kindly, compassionately, his first words to Zechariah are, don't be afraid. Very kind, right? Am I dead? I'm freaking out. You're probably going to smite me down or something here. He's like, don't be afraid. <sighs> okay. That's what we see first. Second, here's a, here's a bunch of things that we see Gabriel say. He says, your prayer has been heard. Now, now Zechariah would have been in the inner temple, uh, burning incense, giving prayers for the people, right? prayers of repentance, prayers for the blessing of the nation. And in comes Gabriel and he says, don't be afraid, your prayer has been heard. And so he's probably at first thinking about something for the nation of Israel. But Gabriel goes on and says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now I doubt that Zechariah was praying for a baby at that moment. He probably had thought that ship sailed long ago. So the prayer that's been answered is actually the prayer that they probably prayed most fervently and through tears over and over and over again for decades of their lives. The prayer that he was answering was the prayer that was the burden that they carried. And what happens in this text is we get to have a window into seemingly unanswered prayers. And what we discover is that during those decades of tear-filled, agonizing prayers, we were, were, were reminded here, God heard every one. And he didn't forget. He never missed any. What God was doing as they prayed was not forgetting or not hearing, but waiting. He was waiting to fulfill it in his way and his time. There's an Old Testament text that talks about God deciding the way the lot is cast. Meaning the sovereignty of God, the control of God over all things is so great. The way the lot, the way the dice in Vegas is thrown. It's like God decides five and two. Do you know God's that sovereign? So they have decades of prayer, decades of prayer. And God's like, yeah, I'm gonna select Zechariah by lot to be in the temple. It'll be just me and him, and I will bring him this. I will send an angel, provide a dramatic miracle, ultimately for the purpose of pushing my plan of salvation forward. And not only that, he's so loving. He's like, I've even got a name prepared. You don't even need to do the name game. You don't need to get the thousand 
baby name book. It's going to be John. What a loving God. I, I hope you know God answers our prayers in his way, in his time. The third thing he says is you will have joy and gladness and many people will rejoice at his birth. So if we look at the first three statements that, that Gabriel has said, he, I think he's actually summarized the three things that every human being craves. No fear, family, happiness. But is that enough? Is that enough for the people of God, I guess is my question. No fear, a family, and happiness. I think that's what the world craves as kind of a basic level. The problem is, I think a lot of times in the church, that's what we crave as well. Yeah, we want to follow Jesus. We'll come worship Jesus. We're part of the church. We love Jesus. But you know, what I really want is I don't want to live in fear. I want to have a family. I want to be happy. The problem is, is in God's kingdom, that's far too small a vision. It's far too little to strive for and to settle for for the people of God. God has so much more for the lives of his followers than that. And, and I wonder if we truly believe that. We had, we had a, uh, a guy in ministry come and uh, share with our elders a few weeks ago when our elders met. And he was just sharing about... Um, uh, the, the, the landscape of the, of the Canadian church. So 37 million people in Canada, 85% of evangelical churches across Canada are, have either plateaued or are in decline. And we are planting churches in our nation, but not nearly at the rate that they're closing. 85% of churches in our nation uh, plateauing or declining. Only 15% are growing and only 3% of the churches in Canada are multiplying. Whether it's in one church building, they're, they're growing and so they're providing more services services, that's a way of multiplying, or whether they're a church that send their people and plant churches, or do what we're doing and plant campuses and send people and multiply that way. And I don't know why, but God has seen fit to use us in a way that we're one of 3% of churches across our nation that are actually growing and multiplying. We praise God for that, but can I just tell you something? It will go nowhere if the people that make up our church merely want three things in life. I don't want to live in fear. I want to have my happy family. And that's it. You know that, right? That's, that, that, that's far too small a vision for the, for the people of God, for disciples of God. Man, he's like, I've given you your family. I've given you your church. I've given you this call. I've given you this vision so you can leverage it all. For the cause of the gospel. And if you think money makes you happy, I want you to give your money. If you think your family makes you happy, I want them sent to the nations. If you, like that, That's the vision of God. You know this, right? You believe this, right? God, for some reason, has seen fit to press us into the, his mission in ways that are wildly uncomfortable. And the tension we live in is we just want our little safe zone well our nation is burning to hear the gospel and so he wants to breathe life on a 3% church in our nation and say I can use you I can use this I can push this further and we're left in the tension of what will it be 
What is it in our lives that we really crave and long for most and recognize that this one life about this one Savior is all that it's all about? So he continues to Zechariah, and I've got to tell you, he continues to press us as well. He says, fourthly, he will be great in the sight of the Lord, meaning this, God has a special regard for this child, and he will be a mighty man of God. When God gives his followers families, you know what the call is? That we would raise up mighty men of God and mighty women of God. That's the whole point. That's why he's given you a family. And later, Jesus will say of this unique son, John the Baptist, who would be a voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord. Jesus says of John, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. He was the greatest prophet to that point. Fifth, Gabriel says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. The angel goes on to say that he's not to drink alcohol. And the reason is this, because he is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. One theologian said of this scenario, such total invasion by the Spirit of God is unprecedented to this point. Indeed, it was. John's filling was prophetic of the filling of the Holy Spirit that would be the hallmark of all who are in Christ. Astounding internal and external forces would affect John's spiritual formation. What an extraordinary son was coming to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But he's a foretaste of what the Holy Spirit dwelling in every believer is to be like. That's why the Apostle Paul goes on to say to all who are Christians with the indwelling Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Does God not like parties? No, it's not the reason. He doesn't want us governed by things like alcohol or marijuana. He wants us governed always by the indwelling Holy Spirit that's motivating our lives in the mission of God. Sixth, he says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. In other words, God will use their son to spark a revival in Israel. Seventh, he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord a people prepared. When Gabriel confronts Zechariah with his prophetic vision, it's the first time a prophecy has been spoken in the nation of Israel, 400 years. The last time was through the prophet Malachi. It's the way the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. And I want you to know in the last verses, chapter four, verse five, Gabriel's quoting the end of Malachi and he's placing it on to John the Baptist. The ministry of John the Baptist would affect hearts so greatly that it would awaken fathers to their parental responsibilities and revolutionize the way people lived. I mean, this marks redeemed hearts today as well, as well, where lives are reprioritized around the gospel. When people come to Christ, everything's on the table. Everything's reprioritized. And he begins to work us from the inside out, transforming everything. See, when the Spirit of God moves among his people, everything's reprioritized around the character and mission of God. Zechariah and Elizabeth longed for a child, and for decades it seemed like their prayers fell on deaf, deaf ears. But man, they could have never dreamed of this, right? 
So I just have to speak a promise of God over you this morning. I want you to hear, children of God, God hears the prayers of his people. Some of you don't believe that anymore. But God hears the prayers of his people. If he's worth praying to, then he's worth trusting in. And he is worthy. He's so worthy. Third, starts to get complicated in our text this morning. We see that when the greatness of our problems overshadow the greatness of God's promises. Verse 18, and Zechariah is hearing all of this in the temple from Gabriel, the messenger of God. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. You're supposed to see the comedy here. He's been selected as the one priest out of the multitude of priests to be in the temple. And when he's in there burning incense, an angel shows up, a messenger of God, an angelic being that strikes fear in him, but then just starts unloading these promises upon him. And he's like, yeah, but how will I know this will happen? Like, could God give me a sign maybe? Like, it, it, it's mind-boggling. And so later, uh, Gabriel's like, because of your unbelief. So, so we, we don't necessarily see it in this verse with, with Zechariah, but we can see it by what Gabriel says. He mutes him until the birth of his son because of his unbelief, because he didn't believe, Gabriel said. Right? And an angel shows up, and it's not sign enough. Zechariah's response to the promises of God was, I don't believe it, and here's why I don't believe it. I don't believe it because of this and this. And you answer these questions for me, and then maybe I'll believe. So Gabriel not only keeps him from speaking, but as is evidenced in verse 62, he keeps him from hearing as well, because they have to sign to him and stuff. So he will not hear and he will not speak from this point till the birth of his child because of his unbelief. See, when our eyes are on our problems, like Zechariah, right? I'm, su I'm super old. I don't see how this will happen, right? His eyes are on his situation, not the promises and faithfulness of God. See, when our eyes are on our problems, we won't remember God's word and how it applies to us. Why didn't Zechariah the priest remember Genesis 17, where Abraham and Sarah were in old age and longed for a child and God delivered? They were in the exact same situation, and God gave them a son. Zechariah should have remembered God's word, but he was focused on his problems. His vision was set on what was right in front of him, his limited view of all these things are going wrong. So God, you're not good. God, you can't do it. When the promises and who God is, the truths of his word are far above. See, Zechariah's in the holiest of places, wanting more proof than scripture and more proof than angelic visitation. And I think we can be the same. Righteous people, Right? Recipients of the gospel, striving, striving to live holy life, righteous people in, in holy places, carrying out holy acts of worship, but subtly underneath not believe God. Like this is how subtle unbelief is. Maybe you've stopped sharing the gospel with people. When was the last time you shared Jesus with someone? I wonder, have you stopped sharing Jesus with people because you don't believe anyone will come to faith? See the subtlety of unbelief? You're here, you're singing the songs, you follow Christ, you're exploring faith, but are you telling others? Well, no, I don't think anyone will. That's unbelief. 
Maybe you've stopped praying because you don't believe it'll make a difference. You don't believe prayer will make a difference. Maybe you've stopped lovingly pursuing your spouse because you don't believe that your marriage is in fact a sovereignly ordained covenant of God. You don't believe that. I get it. Like I can see preaching the gospel as simply some weekly routine and not believe anyone will be saved or not believe that anyone will be matured through it. Is there any unbelief in you like that? See, there are those of us, because of pain, because of sorrow, because of fear, we've become very indignant and we demand of God signs and we demand of God objective evidences. Now, God isn't a God of blind faith. Actually, over and over again, he communicates his glory and he communicates his might and he communicates his power. And what ends up happening in those dark nights of the soul is we want to forget all that God has historically done for us and all the testimonies of others that we've seen him come through in. We want to forget the testimony of the person that suffered and came to know Christ deeply through it. In that moment, we forget. In the moment where it's our pain, where it's our frustration, where it's our fear, where we feel stagnant and worn out, we want to forget the testimony of the saints And we want to accuse God of failing us. And in that moment, what we see from this story and so many others in the Bible is that in that moment, you're going to really love this. God's going to lovingly discipline you. Doesn't that sound fun? I want you to hear both words. God is going to lovingly discipline you. So look, fourthly, when God disciplines us for our good, let's just breeze through the Bible with this, with this idea in mind. David committed adultery. David committed wor- murder. And then he just tries to move on. But God doesn't sweep it under the rug. And so David, on the other side of all of that, actually uh, writes in his... his um, confession and in, in Psalm 51 he said behold of God you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart see see what what David came to realize is that more than dealing with the murder and affair David committed God wanted to deal with the heart in David that made him capable of doing those things And that's what God wants to do in our hearts. He doesn't want to simply modify our behavior. He wants to get right at the heart of the matter in all of our lives. And you know how he typically does that? Through loving discipline. So David goes on in verse 8 of Psalm 51. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What a verse. Anybody want that for Christmas? Crushed bones, please. I would like to have that. That sounds fantastic. But David, on the other side of it, you know what he praises God for? These crushed bones are rejoicing for what you did in me. David means that. Paul, the apostle in 2 Corinthians 12 said, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul was was seen seeing visions of heaven that were so grand, but to keep him from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, he said, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Anybody want that for Christmas? Lord, you know what I think I need right now? 
a messenger from Satan to torment me? Lord, would you do it? Would you wrap it in a bow and send it my way this Christmas? Again, who wants that? But listen to what Paul says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I don't want this, Paul is saying. But Paul, being the greatest missionary that the world has ever seen, God gave him a thorn in his flesh. Why? To keep him humble, to keep him from getting prideful. What good would Paul have been if his head was puffed up? For his good and for ours, God let him suffer some sort of ongoing, nagging, harassing form of, from the messenger of Satan. And Paul gets it, and then he rejoices about it. Verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul gets it. He realizes why he's being disciplined. It's because he's loved. And God wants to see him all the way through. And that will often mean through hardship. There's this woman who was at a well in Samaria in John chapter 4. She was an outcast. She was there at the sixth hour of the day. It was just her and Jesus. It was not the time you go to draw water, but there she is. She's trying to avoid everyone in the community. And Jesus, in conversation with her, offers her living water. And then she says she wants it. And then Jesus looks at her and says, why don't you bring your husband? And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, you're right. You've had a number of husbands. And the man you are with now isn't your husband. Well, why would Jesus do that? Whoa, whoa, whoa. She's accepting the living water. Don't mess with this, Jesus. Just embrace it, right? No, what does, what does he do? He presses the uncomfortable and the shameful in her to produce transformation. And you know what happens? It works. She emphatically leaves her water jar and goes to tell everyone in town about Jesus. And it says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Meaning this, she was an outcast in society who hung on her own. And she met Jesus and now she's leading others to him. How? By going through, pressing in, through the discipline. There was this rich young ruler who's told about in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He comes to Jesus. He's young, he's wealthy, and by all appearances, he's, he's a man of faith, deep faith, right? Sounds like the kind of person you want in leadership in your church, right? Right? Three for three. Wow, that's great. He goes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they talk about it. And it's like, okay, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the young ruler looks at Jesus and said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And then Jesus looks at him and again, does something a little unconventional because Jesus, look, the rich, young, successful, deep faith guy is like about to join the team. This is fantastic. Don't mess with this. And Jesus looks at him and says, one more thing, one thing you lack, sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And Jesus is looking at him and he's loving him as he's doing this. Why would you do that, Jesus? You're not doing this to anybody else. You're not saying it to anybody else. Why are you telling him to sell everything? You're gonna, this moment is going to be lost. But Jesus does actually continue to say that to every person who loves money and possessions more than him. He has to rid us of that. And so he presses us in these things. But disheartened by the saying, this man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. 
He doesn't do what David, Paul, and the Samaritan woman do. They rejoice through the discipline, the loving discipline of God. He walks away sad. Zechariah is pressed here where he's so sensitive. What will he do with the heartache? What will he do with his inability to hear and speak? Will it humble him and produce praise? Or will he pridefully reject the discipline? That's the question for us I want to leave us with. Because I walk with you. We walk together. I've heard many of your stories. And in the difficult times, we struggle to see his love. We often see our sin as this reason for God to not have anything to do with us. But God sees it so differently. He sees our sin as this monumental opportunity to glorify his name in healing us from it. Or this monumental opportunity for turning us to him more deeply. Many of you have watched my life. And I've gone through seasons of discipline in my life. And those were hard. But when I stand where I am and look back at previous hardship discipline, you know what I always see? I always see the loving hand of God in it. I mean, he shaped my character more in those times than any other time. And there's this verse in the scriptures I want you to cling to if you know what I'm talking about. And it's this. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. Are you feeling pressed right now? Can I just give you a word from the scriptures? He disciplines the one he loves. He loves you. I guess my question for you who are serving God with a broken heart, my question for you of those who feel like your prayers are going unanswered, my question for you of those who, whose problems are nearly overwhelming you right now, my question for those of you under God's discipline right now, do you know that he loves you? God disciplined Zechariah because he loved him. He broke David's bones because he loved him. He gave Paul a thorn because he loved him. He cut to the heart of the woman at the well because he loved her. God call, could have left Zechariah alone in his doubts growing bitter, but he pursued him because he disciplines the one he loves. I think you can respond in one of two ways this morning with the posture of the rich young ruler or the posture of David and Paul and the Samaritan woman and Zechariah. And I pray that you would respond that second way and see you're not under wrath. You're under mercy. He loves you. Sometimes it just plays out differently than we think it's true. And as we prepare for Christmas, we recognize what Christmas is all about. Jesus came and he visited us to redeem us. That's what we celebrate. And in doing so, he brought more agony and more suffering upon himself than we could ever imagine. He brought your agony and your suffering ultimately upon himself so God could lovingly come and discipline you, but put the wrath on his son and not on you. So we praise him for visiting and redeeming his people. And we lean into him in the pain and suffering and discipline.
because our growth and joy and good and his glory await by it. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you're after our joy. And there's this rich young ruler who's asking what he needs to do so he's good with God. And Jesus tells him what to do. He doesn't do it and he walks away sad. Then there are these others, Lord, who take the painful road. It's a cross-shaped road. The bearing of a cross and following you and through the pain, through the hardship, through the sorrow, through the confusion. Lord, you bring us all the way through to joy everlasting and joy in the present. You wound us for your good and for your glory. Would you do that in your people, Jesus? Amen.